Welcome to the next episode of the Inspirational Insights podcast. I'm Donna Jones, your host, and we're here to explore business and life from different perspectives with the eye to widening perspective and igniting that transcendent quality we have within us to rise above adversity. With me today is uh, Jardina London. Uh, Jardina is the author of a cool, coolly named book called Cultivating Transformations, A Leader's Guide to Connecting the Soulful and the Practical, published by the Business Agility Institute. She's also a transformation and agility consultant and the founder of Souls at Work, which is a movement to create workplaces that nourish our souls and spread that positive energy everywhere. Journey's mission is to help organizations create soulful, productive, and fun workplace environments. Yay for that that support organizational and cultural change together. And at the same time, you improve profitability because you've got happy and engaged people and all of the natural interconnections. Jarnina has served as the co-founder and CEO of Rosetta Technology Group since 1997. That's a little bit, not quite as long as I have been doing this work, but it's darn close. It's delightful to chat with you today, Jarnina. Let's talk about... Uh, cultivating transformation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and talking with you about this. Our pre-call was lively, so I'm happy to share that now with everybody else. How would you like to start? Well, let's start with healing because the title of your article in the Emergence Magazine, which is also published by the Business Agility Institute, was about healing. Before we reinvent, we must heal. I was attracted to that is because years ago, he went on my website one day and called me up and said, I see you do organizational healing. And I went, what? Oh, how funny. (laughs) Yeah, I'd avoided all terminology that would suggest anything in the woo-woo zone which is where minds went back then quite quickly back in the 90s. Let's start with that. There's a little bit more openness for woo nowadays, but still I say my clients buy the financial results and they get a free side order of soulfulness. But I've started to use some of this terminology more freely than I used to. If you look at what consultants do or what coaches do or what transformational leaders do, a lot of times it's about bringing in a new way of working, bringing in a process and imposing it on the organization. I really believe it won't stick and it won't be used intentionally if there's pain underneath. You're putting a Band-Aid on a festering wound, facing it head on, finding where the pain is and starting there. And it's so funny that you said about the organizational healer, because I do think that we, those of us in the transformational leadership business, are organizational healers. That article that came out, that was a small chapter in the book that became a longer article, but it really is about being willing to sit in the face of pain and face it, even if you don't know how to solve it, (laughs) right? Because there's nothing more important. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I love that because it really involves just being with the emotion, understanding it. My observation is when people deny it or when I've denied it, it comes back to haunt you in ways that are really much more unpleasant. It's a whole lot easier to step into it, learn from it, and then transcend it. If you Yeah, exactly. And I give an example in the book about a place where I worked. I was an employee there, actually, where their pain was that they couldn't get finance to get products ready to book and understand the revenue model and priced to get the product out the door. Product development just kept creating products and leaving them at the door of finance. I sat in the product development meeting and they were all like, yeah, well, we're just going to keep developing products and it'll be finance's fault. I just thought 
that's not helpful to anyone who works here or the customer. They laughed at me when I said, I'm going to go fix this. Cause I was like, it can't be fixed. We just laugh about it and make fun of it. And I was like, no, this is the biggest problem in the company. We can't get products to customers. (laughs) So I did just some simple work of building a backlog and building relationships that eased the flow, but it wasn't so much about what I did. It was the fact that I was willing to do something because it was painful. Now, in your observation, this is something that's been bothering me quite a bit. Post-COVID, there's a certain reticence. It seems like there's more risk aversion. I don't know if that's just my perception or whether there's actually a momentum issue going on. Are you watching people take greater risks or fewer risks? What's the tolerance for risk in getting something done? I'm certainly seeing individuals wanting to take greater risk right? Because we're seeing great resignation and people wanting to change their careers. I've been interviewing some people and I'm very focused on what's on their resume from 2020 until now. And people have done some fascinating things during that time. And then companies too. It's interesting that you say you've seen people taking less risk. I'm seeing more risk because they now are more comfortable with chaos or an uncertainty than they were pre-pandemic. So I'm seeing more willingness to pivot, more willingness to deal with uncertainty. Excellent. That's music to my ears. I'm delighted to hear that. What have you learned from your experience in working with organizations that have pains? The old consulting model is if you have a pain, then you build off the pain. That drives me crazy because I prefer to focus on growth. What have you seen in terms of the dynamic of pain to growth, of motivation, of stepping into an organizational transformation. What's the source of it mostly? Is it foresight or is it a wound of sorts? You can't build growth on top of pain. So there has to be some healing, but I don't know if I would then stay there forever, (laughs) right? A lot of times when I hear people say, I'm going to come in and introduce this new process, you can't build it on top of the pain, but you do want to move forward as quickly as possible after that. But what I found too is it's a great way to build enrollment and credibility and trust is that we've helped heal this pain that's been festering. And now we have trust and attention and capacity, by the way, mental bandwidth to move into the growth stage. I use that sort of as a first step to get into the next stage. Okay, so when we talk about pain, we're talking about stock projects, we're talking about broken relationships, we're talking about actions in the past that destroyed trust in other ways. What's the key thing for people to be able to move through that wound and come up to a next level of and relationship? A great first step is just being able to face it and have a conversation about it instead of having it be a backroom conversation. But I think after that, there's some appreciation that it's acknowledged. So transparency, acknowledgement, and then I think the fixing is easier. I guess it was Einstein that talked about the hard part is defining the problem, the easy part is solving it. It's the same thing. The example I gave with product development and finance was not rocket science how I solved that problem. It was just the willingness to acknowledge it and make it transparent that was the magic. And those are the two steps. I'm working with clients even recently where People are frustrated and in pain and what they just want is acknowledgement that they are frustrated and we haven't yet come up with a solution. It's not the solution. It's the fact that we care and we work with you to have one, to come up with one. 
we have denied the role of emotions in organizations for a long time. Decisions are supposed to be rational, rational meaning fact or data driven. And in the course of that, I think we pretended we aren't human. So what are you observing with respect to the connection between being human and transforming organizations? I do a lot of work with emotional literacy and coaching leaders on emotional literacy. Self-awareness and emotional literacy is super important for all individuals in the organization. The difference between a transformational leader and others, or a great leader and others, is that they can use that emotion, not be driven by it. So they're informed by emotion, not driven by it. So it doesn't mean don't have an emotion. It just means that the emotion is not taking control of you, (laughs) right? So if I feel angry that our product launch is going to be delayed, that's information for me. doesn't mean I have to go yell at everybody, but maybe I decide that yelling at everyone is the right thing to do because that's going to light a fire under them. I don't know. But I'm making an intentional decision to to maybe hold people accountable versus just letting my emotions run the day. Another thing too is something's bothering me about this. Like I feel uncomfortable and anxious. Identifying that emotion and then wondering, wait, am I missing something that my intuition is telling me? And then go find the data to use that as information, not to just sandbag it or pocket veto it because you feel anxious. I like the way you frame that because there is quite a bit of confusion between emotion and intuition. That fear is intuition was one that I came across a long time ago. That's actually not the case at all, but it is a particular set of signals that you're working on using a compass. My emotions tell me what I'm reaching, what I'm bumping into as I'm moving through. So really helpful if you're trying to observe or manage or oversee or be involved or guide or any of those words and organizational transformation because the emotion of the people will tell you everything. Yeah. And this also goes to gender and thinking of using different types of leadership, more feminine leadership is coming into play now, which is wonderful. And intuition is one of the big pieces there, which we've normally said intuition doesn't have a place here. It doesn't have a place by itself, but in combination with following up and using it as information, it's super valuable. You gave that example of fear. So what is my fear telling me? Am I afraid that it's too much risk to the company? And maybe there's something to think about there. There's nothing wrong with having emotions. I coach leaders on sharing instead of emoting and acting out your emotion, but sharing the fact that you're having an emotion. So with the example I gave, product launch is going to be late. As a leader, you might say, I'm feeling angry about this versus yelling. <laughs> yeah. Let's bringing it to the conscious level and treating it as conscious information versus just something that's running subliminally wreaking havoc, essentially. Anytime you see somebody going into a rage, it's out of control. Anytime you see them getting angry, it's definitely the choice not to use the creative talent that people have. That's biologically the way Joseph Chilton Pierce describes it in the biology of transcendence. I find that helpful because at least, you know, I'm having an emotion or there's something that this environment is telling me, which is something else. I'm curious to know if you've experienced this and witnessed this in your organizational change work, but if I go into an environment, I will notice my behavior will change. And because I'm observing it as a facilitator, okay, this is interesting. There's something embedded in this environment that's causing this behavioral change. So it's a great navigator for what people are experiencing because the emotion is saturated in the environment. People are happy. They're sad. When you walk into a toxic environment, you can feel it. 
It's not something you go out with a little toximeter and wait to see what it tells you. How have you observed that in the work you've done with various companies? Exactly the same. I'm curious too about if you've noticed a difference when it's online or in person, because I think online, you can eventually get it, right? But not always, especially if people have their camera off. I think there's a lot that we don't know about how we communicate emotion. I think it's beyond body language. So that's why we say things like trust your intuition, because sure, maybe science someday will learn about how we're communicating emotion. But in the meantime, we just need to listen to it. Right. So, yeah, you can absolutely get a vibe in a room and pick up the energy if you're paying attention to it. Other people are picking it up, too. And the beautiful thing about naming your emotion is that other people can say, I feel that way, too, (laughs) because what you're sensing, if you're attuned to energy in a room, what you're sensing is not just yours. You have a little antenna (laughs) that's picking up what's there. Yeah, no, exactly. It makes the invisible quite visible and then you can work with it. The other thing that I was thinking of when you mentioned intuition is that entrepreneurs rely on their intuition to get everything done. So do spies. They're trying to stay safe. They rely on their intuition. But for some reason, when we move it into the business context, it's not okay. And yet most of the decisions will be executive level decisions that are made relying on intuition. Fascinating. It's funny that you say that because I'm curious about when we think that we're not relying on our intuition, is it just confirmation bias? The whole thinking fast and slow, Daniel Kahneman proved that when we think we're using facts and data, we still aren't. (laughs) Yeah, some delusions going on there. Let's go back to cultivating transformation. When you're working in organizations and when you're seeing particularly the kind of boldness that we need right now to shift out of the familiar and into the edgier part, what's happening? What collective emotion are people feeling in the course of staring at a pretty significant jump? In some cases, we have whole systems collapsing, the healthcare system, for example. In order to redesign and reinvent that, there's got to be a major shift in orientation, shifting oh. the from one way of seeing things to another. What have you observed? Well, so we know that people's anxiety is at an all-time high. That's part of it. And it is a time of great change. But when I look at some of the statistics about how long it will take for women to have equality in the workplace, it was like 200 years, but that's not how it actually works. The healthcare system is a perfect example. To change the healthcare system will take X amount of years, but in real life, punctuated equilibrium, right? It will happen in an instant. (laughs) (laughs) things just don't happen that way. So I think we're in the middle of some of this disruption right now. And it's hard to know how it's going to be on the other side or what's going to happen. But people are extremely anxious and uncomfortable right now. I don't know if that's a useful emotion. It's a natural human emotion, but it's not useful because I don't know how much actual control we have over the change that's coming. We always have control over our response to it. And I think that's the big opportunity for digital transformation is to step into a much higher level of response ability, so to speak, but it goes beyond resilience. That's that big jump that I was referencing. Yeah. We can always manage our response. I think a lot of folks are trying to predict and plan. That's the old model, the predict and plan model instead of sense and respond, which is what we do when we have complexity and chaos. I don't know if we've, as a culture, yet being able to change our mindset to a sense and respond mindset. We say it, but people have trouble with that. 
They do. The sense part of it is inherent in intuition for people that are more sensitive than others. That's not a judgment or a value judgment. It's just a reality that some people are much more sensitive to what's going on in the environment than others are. And that's really core to sensing. So this is where diversity comes in. Because if you're with a group of people, I don't care what background they are, everybody's going to have a different level of sensitivity, but also see the world through a different lens. What shifts in beliefs do you think are required in terms of dealing with emotions like anxiety and what the future holds? Well, it's certainty, right? It's letting go of certainty. So we've have a culture of accumulate and hold. So being able to let go of things and beliefs or things and plans and expectations is really what we need to let go of to get to sense and respond. It's in our personal lives and it's at work and it's everywhere. But this whole concept of, well, we built it, so now we must use it, or we've purchased it, or we've saved this money, so now it must be there. We need to let go of some of that. Any thoughts on how? It's a mindset shift, but I think it's a value shift. So we've valued accumulation. (laughs) We haven't valued flexibility. We've built around scarcity. So trusting that there's abundance allows you to let go of some of these things that we hang on to. Those are some of the things, but thinking back about the cultivating transformations, I titled it cultivating because I wanted to have us think more about living systems and living systems, let things go and release cycle through. They don't just accumulate thinking about things as a living system might be useful in moving to this new sense and respond world. That's a bit of a jump. For people that are used to seeing things past, present, and future, it's a considerably different orientation to be able to widen that lens. That's the one dimension to it. The other dimension is that if you're coming from a place of fear, everything gets bracketed really narrowly. You have one option ahead. Those are your signals that you're in that territory because some of this operates so quietly that it's not as if you get a notification saying your organization is saturated in fear. Your stress levels are at all-time high. We need to make a jump. Where do we get the energy for that? Where do we find the resources for that? When you have worked with companies in the past, have you seen any particular collective intelligence emerge when there's that compelling need to transform? The collective intelligence is an interesting question. It is all about energy. Where are we able to have our energies sync and resonate? I talk a lot about resonance and frequency. Because where we're dissonant, this doesn't mean no diversity, but where we're dissonant, then, you know, what happens when there's dissonance, even with sound, it gets out of sync and out of alignment and sounds bad and hurts your ears. Leaders that can tap into the resonance in the group and have people resonate with each other, that's really powerful when you're moving in this newer world. When I hear the word dissonant, I think of an orchestra warming up, you know, it's just like, "Ah." yeah, yeah, exactly. The cacophony leaders that can sense energy, like you're talking about, and be able to widen that range of resonance. Fear makes you pretty myopic. Good leaders have a wider range of spectrum that they can collaborate with. And widening that spectrum of what's acceptable and what you can resonate with will create a better, more holistic organization. How does agile and agility, agile being the process, the methodology, the mindset, and agility being the result? How have you seen that evolve? What are the walls that the experience of trying to be agile or developing greater agility with chaos and complexity 
How's that evolving? I think that two things are connected. My clients don't hire me to come talk about some of the things we've just been talking about. That's the undercurrent of everything that I do. But I do believe that there's a connection between process and results with this soulfulness and energy stuff that we're talking about. Just pick any of the typical agile processes that we do. Maybe you pick like prioritization. I love prioritization. First of all, it aligns people. Right. It gets us all marching in the same direction. It does give us some soulfulness. One of the things I love about prioritization is it moves it from on my shoulders, burdening me, frustrating me and making me stressed out into a list somewhere, either electronic or physical. <laughs> and we can all talk about it. So it's not, can you do this? It's, can we do this? <laughs> right. So I love the connection between some of the processes that we put in place there's this virtuous cycle, if you do it right, where the process helps you be more soulful and the soulfulness then feeds back into the process. Not really separate. Let's, let's define the word soulful. And then I want to go back to what we were just talking about, but let's just interject with the definition of soulful. Sure. I struggled to get the right word here and I settled on soulful. People ask me if I mean religious. I don't mean religious, but if you want it to mean that, that's cool. It's just that deeper inside of us all and inside the company too, that is not just about bringing my whole self to work and my personality. It's what's deep inside me is being nourished. It's the ethos, right? But the easier way to think about what is soulfulness that resonates quickly with everybody is, well, what is it like when it's not? What is it like when it's soul crushing? And everyone knows what that means. If you don't know what soulful means, you know what soul crushing means. So it's the opposite of soul crushing. <laughs> That's a great way of doing it. It's a great way of creating the frame around what it isn't and that people can reference that. Going back to the experience of transformation and cultivating those environments, organizations have developed a lot of KPIs to the point where it's blinding. There's so many of them that focus would get dispersed everywhere. And now we have ARs, measurement. When you're looking at those methods and you're looking at being these organizations or cultivating the environment where these organizations can really flourish. How do you handle this complexity that's been created from the inside to shift it to something that's simpler, but more effective in working with complexity? With regard to measurements and metrics, yeah. I had a client actually once tell me this, but I've been using it for many years ever since. And what he said was metrics are not intended to be analysis. They are intended to be signals. And I think that's where we go wrong. That's the first thing. When you have so many different KPIs and metrics and OKRs so that you can see and engineer everything, that's not what it's for. It's a dashboard to show you where to go look further. Because why are you doing so much metrics on things that you may never need to do analysis on, right? It's only when something is going wrong. It's only when your engine light's on that you need to take it to the shop or open the hood or whatever you do. It's not when everything's running. Stop looking at metrics when everything's fine, right? The other thing that I tell people is, especially with OKRs, but with anything, is I really want us to design our metrics to know when we're wrong. And we don't do that. We design metrics to know when we're right and to show that we're doing a good job and to prove our worth. And that's not what it's for. I was working recently with a team that said, if we can show that we're, all of our metrics are good, then that is what's gonna keep our team funded and alive. I said, well, wait a minute. No, <laughs> that's not what metrics are for. Because if your team should not be invested in by the company, then the metrics should show that. <laughs> you go work with a team that has more promise and a better investment for the company. It's not about self-sustaining. 
Yeah, exactly. So the motivation has got to be overtly clear, not driving subliminally underneath a long time ago when I was evolving my own thinking on this work and how it was going. I'm sitting around with Fred Simon and Nick Zanuck, both Ford executives, and we were talking about the work they did on the Taurus, 1995. Anyway, it was in that period of time when they were doing this work. This is on my first podcast. They changed the process in Ford from reporting so that everything looked perfect on this project. They didn't change it within Ford itself, I should say, to signal when we've got some engineering problems. And they got huge backlash initially because there was an expectation that what you were reporting should be perfect, as you said, show how great the work was. But when you're in an engineering process, you don't want to know that everything's perfect. You want to know where things are going wrong because that's where the expense lies. It was quite the process they went through to get the organizations, what's now called the immune system, which mm-hmm. is revealed in the behavior of, in this case, the senior level, who are saying, what do you mean? What have you, what have you got here? You've got all these mistakes. And well, that's the whole point. We're trying to reduce cost. So I think Agile's done something to inject a, a legitimate or validated process to do that kind of work. It is at least knowing what you're paying attention to and yeah. then knowing whether that's going to help you or not. And then the culture shift in being able to receive that information. Exactly. I do a lot of my work on the coaching of you're going to be receiving problems now and things will be escalated to you. It used to be try not to escalate it or you would escalate it and then it would come back as well. Thanks and keep working hard. (laughs) Now it's no, this is now your job to help with. Right. Right. Anything else you want to add? Anything we haven't talked about you'd like to insert? into our conversation? I would just mention that the book is arranged in sections of the me, the we, and then the system. First, as a transformational leader, you really need to be aware of your blind spots, self-awareness. Learning your blind spots is so huge because you are impacting the organization as you're transforming. So we talked about emotional literacy. That's a great example of learning to manage your emotions and not let them drive you, but let them inform you. As a leader, that's the me. The we is connecting people together. We talked about energy and resonance and things like that. And then the system is what we all think we're going to start with. (laughs) How do we change the process and the structure and the flow? That's fascinating and wonderful. And I love that too. But unless you're managing yourself and connecting other people, the system stuff won't stick. I mean, intervening in a system is complex and it takes a different level of thinking, kind of thinking. It definitely takes a different approach. However, when we look at the decisions we've seen in the last couple of years, not a lot of thinkers are capable of making that switch to recognizing this is not a simple problem. It's something that is complex. Therefore, we need a different approach. We need a multi-pronged, more principled approach. In terms of decision-making, what kind of shifts have you observed and what kinds of things do you think needs to shift when we're working with these complex transitions or transformations In terms of decision-making, I think what you were just alluding to, and I'll go back there, is coming up with a great solution for the system that is complex thinking. Only few people in the world can probably do that. It doesn't matter if nobody wants to use it, if it's rejected by the immune system or resistance. So that's something to think about. I love the Don Reinertsen book about product development flow. I've gone into companies earlier in my career where I had great wow, this, we really need to limit our work in progress. They didn't care about the math or anything I was saying. <laughs> That's just something to think about. Decision-making, the we is really important because otherwise the solution doesn't matter. 
what you're referencing though is the, the belief system that, that underpins the whole system. The immune system, you can deal with, you can work with it, you can expose it, you can expose it through the healing process, you can expose it just by looking at those kinds of conversations. What beliefs are driving these decisions and what assumptions, that's a tough thing to do. But it's much less expensive to do that than it is to forge ahead on the basis of an assumption that's flawed or badly distorted for whatever yeah, reason. Or misunderstood. Right, right. There's a quote, and it's been attributed to so many different people. One of them is Linus, who plays the piano on with Snoopy. I love humankind. It's the humans I can't stand. And a lot of people who work at the system level just forget about, I love people. I just don't like the person, right? So we just can't forget that the system is made of people. What focus would you suggest people bring forward to their observation? I think the, the, the place to always start is self-awareness and looking to expose your own blind spots. Because without that, you have no idea what your impact is. Just realizing that you have an impact all the time whether you say a word or not. So just becoming much more aware of what your impact is because there's plenty of information and advice about the system. But being aware of yourself is something only you can do. Well said, who am I? What's my place in the world? And how do I move through the world? Observing just how do you move through the world? What impact do you have? I really appreciate that. Mm. Thank you for coming onto the show and just having a chat. Thank you for the pleasure. Where do people go for more information on your work? My website is rosettaagile.com. You can also check out the book, of course, which is any fine bookseller, including Amazon, Cultivating Transformations. The website for the book, cultivatingtransformations.com, can give you more info. My personal website, that's jardinalondon.com, is all the edgy things I'm thinking about that are outside of things that I'm actually getting paid for. Cultivating the soulful to the practical is a excellent way of describing the transition stage from companies as mechanistic devices to companies as human-centered workplaces. The article, Before We Reinvent, We Must Heal, is in this issue of Emergence Magazine, published by the Business Agility Institute. It's a very high-quality magazine. The articles are excellent. If you decide to subscribe, Put my name into the code Donna, D-A-W-N-A, and you'll get a 10% discount. Back to the conversation. In 1999, Peter Senge quoted spirit as the fuel that drives performance in companies. We've come full circle in terms of being able to talk about things in human terms and not just stick to the the traditional lexicon we are shifting our language the way you talk about control or then imply control to a language that's more equitably where power is more equitably distributed decision making is decentralized to gain the kind of agility that's really needed in today's world my name is donna jones i hope you'll subscribe to this podcast it's an eclectic mix you're following my brain and opportunities that show up as we go but the intention is to gain insights and then to go and apply them in your personal life or in your business life please share subscribe to the podcast and offer a review if you have any particular topics you'd like to cover you'd like to see covered reach me on linkedin the link is in the show notes. Thank you for joining me.